Our scripture reading today comes from James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Brent Nelson, and I'm part of the pastoral residency program here at the Leewood campus, and it's a joy to be with you today. Uh, some of you know some of my story, but uh, prior to attending seminary, I spent nine years working in a notoriously secular Midwestern city. Not many people there went to church on Sunday mornings. Uh, many of my friends, they were either de-churched, you know, they had, they had walked away from the Christian faith entirely, or they simply had no background with Christianity or in very little knowledge of the Bible. And in that context, I never experienced anything even approaching hostility for my beliefs. Um, people I talked to tended to be more curious than anything else about why I took my faith seriously. But one of the lasting impressions that living in that city left on me was that I met some of the most remarkable people, uh, people who worked hard and with a high level of integrity, who were kind and generous, who volunteered their time and served their community and advocated for the poor, uh, but they weren't Christians. One friend of mine uh, volunteered a significant amount of her time to mentor neglected children and then advocate for them in the courts. Um, a neighbor couple housed a refugee couple uh, for years after they had fled the civil war in Syria. And uh, one woman that I knew, uh, she imported handmade goods that were made uh, in poor parts of Africa, and then she would sell them here in America and then send the profits back to Africa to the makers. So these were, these were kind-hearted people who put their values into practice. And their value system, which often didn't so much, you know, didn't explicitly reject so much as uh, ignore God, was producing people who were doing good things. And one of their concerns about Christianity was that it didn't seem to be making much, uh, better people or much of a difference in the world. And it, it makes you think, what difference does faith make in how a Christian lives their life? What difference should it make? Many Christians say it makes a big difference, but in practice, their lives look just like everyone else. And so I think today's sermon is one that uh, many of my non-Christian friends would like to preach to Christians. They want to see a faith that makes a difference 
in the lives of the individual believer and also in our communities, in our, in our world. They want to see a faith that works. So we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Real Faith, where we're walking through this letter that's written by Jesus' brother James, who was an early leader in the Jerusalem church. And if you remember from last week, James is writing this letter to Jewish followers of Jesus like himself, many of whom have scattered elsewhere um, due to persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. And James's letter is bathed in Jesus' teaching as well as language and ideas from the Old Testament. We'll see a lot of that today. And it's an incredibly practical book in which James is constantly showing us what real or whole or integral faith looks like. So last week we looked at the first five verses of the letter in which James shows that the testing of our faith leads to perseverance and maturity. Testing leads to perfect or complete or whole faith. In the rest of chapter one then, James is going to kind of hit on a bunch of themes uh, pretty rapidly and he, he will develop later in the book. So for example, he talks about gaining wisdom and caring for the poor and controlling our tongues. Um, and so we're going to skip a little bit ahead today. We're going we're to jump ahead, uh, but we're going to come back to all those ideas in chapter 1 when James develops them more fully later. And so today we're jumping all the way to the second half of chapter 2. And we're looking at a passage that, uh, that's pretty challenging for a lot of Christians, especially those of us who are in the Protestant tradition. And why they gave this passage to the resident, I don't know. Um, I think it's like a pastoral hazing or rite of passage thing or something. But if you are not there already, uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 14. Now, James starts this section of the letter with two questions, and they, these questions frame the entire passage. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Just a few verses later, in verse 17, he's already answered the question. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But James keeps hammering this point home. In verse 20, he says, faith apart from works is useless. And again, in his concluding verse 26, he summarizes, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And he'd already hinted at all of this back in chapter 1, when he said that if we only hear the word but don't do what it says then we're deceiving ourselves. That was chapter 1, verse 22. So what is the point that James keeps hitting us with again and again and again? It's this. Real faith works. Real faith works. Now, for some of us, that might strike us as problematic. You know, aren't we saved apart from our works? After all, check out what Paul says in Romans three twenty-eight. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Now let's put that up on the screen next to James 2.24. It says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now if this is confusing to you, or if you have questions about this, Tom and Andrew are back next week, and they, <laughs> they'll be happy to entertain them. Just kidding. Uh, so this is hard, right? This looks, it's, feels like a contradiction. What, what's going on here? Um, Martin Luther, actually, you know, he's a Protestant reformer. Um, he famously wasn't too fond of the book of James, and this is, this is one of the reasons why. So let's spend a couple of minutes talking about this issue. Um, I'll try to explain why I don't think it's a problem at all, but, but I do want to spend most of our time really reading what James has to say. 
Now, I've, I've heard too many sermons on this passage that spend all their time with this sort of debate between James and Paul, and they never actually really get into what James is trying to teach us, which I think is really important. So we'll get to James in just a minute, but let's start here. How can James say that we are justified by works and not by faith alone, and Paul say that we're justified by faith apart from works? Now, there's a lot that's been written about this, and if you're interested in digging more into it, I'd be happy to talk to you um, or recommend a resource for you. But I'll give two responses today, um, and, and again, there's more we could say if, if we had time. First, James is not an outlier in what he's saying. He's, in linking faith and works, James is, what James is saying is completely consistent with Jesus and with other New Testament figures. John the Baptist said that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's Matthew 3.10. The Apostle John gives the same idea a little differently in 1 John 3.24 when he says, whoever keeps Jesus' commandments abides in God. Jesus said that each tree is known by its fruit. It's Luke 6.44. And in Matthew 25, he tells a story about how people are represented in the story by sheep and goats, how they're divided up at the final judgment, based on their works. And Paul himself says in Romans 2.6 that God will render to each person according to their works. And in Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What counts for Paul is faith working through love. So I've obviously ripped all these passages out of their contexts, and there's more that we could say about each one, but, but please hear me on this. These passages are not saying that we earn our salvation, but they are saying that there's an inextricable link between faith and works. And James is right in line with other New Testament voices in pointing out that link. We are saved by faith alone, but as New Testament scholar Doug Moo says, real faith is not faith that is alone. Real faith works. Second, James and Paul are using the word works a little bit differently. So when Paul talks about works, he's usually talking about works of Torah in the sense of Jewish boundary markers. So circumcision, eating kosher, Sabbath keeping, these are not necessary for the Christian. Paul wants his predominantly Gentile audience to know that they don't have to do these works, that is, to become culturally Jewish, to follow Jesus. And for James, works are, are simply good works. And good works are the fulfillment of the great commandment to love God and love neighbor. This is how Jesus interpreted the Torah, and he certainly expected his followers to obey those commands. So those are the works that we're supposed to do. And for James, then, works are just a way of talking about obedience to Jesus. So that's all I'm going to say uh, for now about Paul and James, because I really want to get to the rest of what James is saying. But, but to summarize, I think Paul and James, along with the rest of the New Testament authors, agree that real faith works. And James now is going to demonstrate that principle with, with four illustrations, the first two of which are negative and the second two of which are positive. And we'll, we'll have to move through them relatively quickly. Our first illustration shows that real faith is not empty words. Let's read verses 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? Notice that go in peace is a, is a kind of a pious-sounding phrase. Peace or shalom is a really important idea um, in the Jewish religion. Again, James is writing to Jewish Christians. 
So this is a response that sounds religious, but it's actually just empty words because it's not helping the person in their actual bodily need. And so the word, and the words poorly clothed here are probably not a strong enough translation. Many English translations will choose to say, will say naked or without clothes. So this person isn't, isn't wearing clothes that are out of style or, or just old or ragged or dirty. No, this, this person can't even afford that. And so picture this, you're meeting, you're meeting with your, your community group or your men's or women's study this week, and this naked, emaciated person shows up. And now, now we're Christians, and so you know, we know better than to turn this person away. You know, certainly Jesus wouldn't do that. So we, maybe we grab a blanket so that they can cover up. We tell them to grab a snack and invite them to join us for the study. And as the meeting ends and everyone starts to head out, we say this. We say, hey, we're praying for you this week. You know, we're praying that God would provide you with the food and shelter and clothing that you need. And then we send them on their way. I doubt any of us would ever do that. Okay, it, it actually, it borders on cruelty, right? We, we would never treat someone that way. I think all of us would say, hey, let me, let me buy you a set of clothes, and here's some money for a meal, and let me make sure you've got a place to stay for the night. So the illustration is kind of ridiculous. We would never behave in the way that James describes but James is saying that's how ridiculous faith without works is. Religious phrases like go in peace or I'm praying for you, if, if they're not accompanied by loving action, they're, they're no faith at all. Real faith is not empty, just empty words or well wishes. It, it takes action. And we're going to talk more about this next week when Andrew's up here. Uh, but real faith specifically takes action on behalf of the poor. The illustration of the naked brother or sister that James uses here is, is set in a broader context uh, for the poor, of concern for the poor, which James is hitting on again and again and again in this section of the letter. He's talked about the importance of caring for widows and orphans, about not showing partiality to the rich. And I think even the examples of Abraham and Rahab are connected in part because of their actions of mercy uh, towards strangers. And many of us, we live in a context probably where we're not face-to-face with poverty every day. Some of us probably are, but most of us are not. The poor person that James describes probably isn't going to wander into this building for the men's, during the men's study on Friday morning. But that's one reason why we have a bunch of different ministry partners for you to get involved with. Okay, and if you're not plugged in, there are all kinds of ways to put your faith to work by helping our partners, whether it's Meals for the Hope Center or meeting a need, a local need through the care portal, like Don talked about this morning, or mentoring or participating in a backpack, backpack drive for a Cristo Rey, and on and on. So if you do want to jump in, uh, we'd love to get you connected to somebody on our outreach teams so you can learn more about how to get involved. But let's move on to James's second illustration. And this one hits close to home for me. James here shows us that real faith is not the same as correct beliefs. Now, let's be clear up front, okay? Theology and doctrine matter. I went to seminary for four years to get a master's degree in this stuff, so it matters to me. Uh, James has plenty of theology in his letter, and so it matters to him as well. But simply asserting that the right things are true does not necessarily lead to real faith. Let's look at verses 18 to 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, James says you believe that God is one. He's referring to the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, which you may be familiar with. 
It starts this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema was and still is today recited daily by practicing Jews. The Shema is actually, it's a Hebrew word. It's the first word in the Shema, which is where the, the name comes from. And it means more than just a physical act of hearing or listening. It also implies obedience. So it means hear these words and obey them. If hearing doesn't result in obedience, then we're not really listening. Even the demons hear, but, but they don't obey. So the Shema, is, it's a critically important um, statement to our theology, and it's critically important, uh, it's true about God. It's foundational to our theology that there is just one God. But believing that something is true about God is not the same as believing in or trusting in or placing your faith in God. And this is where I got tripped up uh, when I was a kid. And, and I don't know if this is what was actually communicated or taught to me, but my understanding when I was growing up was that I just needed to believe that the right things were true, and if I did that, I was saved. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes, yes I do. But notice the wording. Believe that is not the same as believe in. Do you hear that difference? Dallas Willard talks about this in his excellent book, The Divine Conspiracy, which I highly recommend. He says, what must be emphasized in all of this is the difference between trusting Christ, the real person Jesus, with all that that naturally involves, versus trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him, trusting only in his role as guilt remover. To trust the real person Jesus is to have confidence in him in every dimension of life, to believe that he is right about and adequate to everything. So that was my problem when I was young. In Willard's words, I was just trusting in an arrangement for sin remission. God loves me, plus I am a sinner, plus Jesus died for me equals I go to heaven when I die. And it's a nice, neat formula, but God doesn't want me to believe in a formula. He wants me to believe in him. It's like believing that gravity exists, but jumping off a building anyway. Real faith believes that gravity exists and takes the stairs. So I, I believed that the gospel was true. I believed that God existed. I believed that Jesus died for my sins, and I believed that he wanted me to be good. But it wasn't until I was much older that I actually began to believe in him, to trust in him with, with my life and with my decisions. And so the problem with demons is not their theology. They know what is true, and their theology might actually be better than yours or mine. Theology is really important, but if all we have is correct theology, correct beliefs about God and the gospel, then we're no better off than demons. Correct theology needs to lead to right action. So real faith is not about picking the correct religion from the religion menu. Real faith, saving faith, is more than, about more than being right. Real faith is not the same as correct beliefs. Now, James has two more examples for us, and he, he chooses two figures from the Old Testament to further illustrate his point that real faith works. In his first illustration, Abraham makes a lot of sense. You know, he's, he's the founding father of the faith. He's a central figure in the book of Genesis. But his second illustration, Rahab, is pretty surprising. Let's start with her. Rahab is a character who shows up in Joshua chapter 2. She's a prostitute who lives in Jericho, uh, which is a, a city that the Israelites are about to conquer when they enter into the promised land. And she hides two Israelite spies to, to protect them from capture. 
And then she lies to their pursuers, and they, so they go off in a different direction. And surprisingly, for James, then, she's an example of faith alongside Abraham. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Is there anything more surprising in Scripture than these words? The prostitute was justified by works. You can take a minute to think about that. Notice that James wants to make sure that you remember her occupation, okay? As a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab would seem to be the ultimate outsider to God's people. She's a Canaanite, not an Israelite, so, so her ethnicity is wrong. And she's, as a prostitute, she's not exactly living a morally pure life. And in a strongly patriarchal culture, perhaps even her gender is wrong, or at least it makes her an unlikely hero. So let me say this, if you think that your past is so messed up that it somehow disqualifies you from being able to receive God's grace, remember Rahab the prostitute. And here's the point about Rahab. It's not that her good works outweighed her bad works. That's clearly not true. In Joshua 2.11, she makes a beautiful profession of faith. And to the previous point, as a Canaanite, she probably didn't know that much about the God of Israel. In fact, her theology probably wasn't very good. She probably didn't know the stories about Abraham or creation. She probably had never heard the Ten Commandments. But she was certain that the God of Israel was the true God of heaven and earth. And she immediately acted on that faith at the risk of her life. So Rahab shows us that real faith is not half-hearted. She makes a decision and she is all in. And if you remember the story, even though she risked her life, in the end, it was her risk that actually saved her life as well as the lives of her family. And Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, eventually became the great-great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. So God is looking for that, this kind of all-in faith from us. We should be able to look back on our faith journey and identify specific risks that we've taken because of our faith in Jesus. I know that for me, those moments of risk are often what draw me closer to him. So let's ask ourselves, you know, when was the last time that we took a risk for Jesus? When was the last time we engaged in a, in a, with a non-believer in a conversation about faith? Or sacrificially served a difficult-to-love neighbor or coworker, Or used a vacation day to volunteer your time? Or sat with an unpopular student at the lunch table? Real faith takes these kinds of risks and trusts that God will show up. And when God shows up, big things happen. So Rahab is a surprising person for James to use as an example of faith. But, but the way that James uses Abraham, I think, is equally surprising. So hang in there with me on this. Let's read carefully, starting in verse 20. James says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, this is the foolish person is the, the hypothetical person who thinks you can have faith without works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Again, remember, James is writing to this Jewish audience so he can assume that, that they know their Old Testament and that they're familiar with all these stories. And I think they might have noticed something that we may miss if we don't read carefully. So follow me on this, okay? In Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham to provide him with an heir, with a son. In response to that promise... 
Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is Genesis 15, 6. So Abraham is justified here in Genesis 15. And eventually, after some pretty serious ups and downs in Abraham's life, Isaac is born. But in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham's faith by telling him to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. Abraham trusts that God is going to work it out, and so he agrees. And at the last minute, God provides a substitute. So Abraham, in Genesis, Abraham is justified by faith in Genesis 15, right? And seven chapters and several decades later, he offers his son Isaac in Genesis 22. So how can James say that Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac if Genesis says he was justified by faith several decades earlier? You guys follow me on this? To answer that, we have to keep reading James. Verses 22 to 23. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. The idea behind the word completed here is that Abraham's faith had reached its intended goal. The word actually has the same root that we saw last week uh, when we learned that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And in chapter 1, verse 4, it said, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. So that idea that perfect and complete is the same root word here that James is using uh, about Abraham's faith being completed. So remember, Andrew was telling us that trials and challenges in life refine our faith to bring it to perfection, maturity, or completeness. And so Abraham, then, is actually the perfect example of what we talked about last week. The testing of Abraham's faith matured or perfected his faith, which was the goal all along. The testing of Abraham, uh, the example of Abraham, then, shows us that real faith keeps growing. Abraham's justification by faith in Genesis 15 wasn't invalid. His faith just wasn't tested or mature yet. And our faith journey is the same. Is your your faith the same as when you first trusted in Jesus? Has it not grown through difficult seasons of life? A tested faith does not invalidate an untested faith. Our justification was fact at the time of conversion, but our faith was never meant to stay where it started. It was meant to mature or to be completed or fulfilled as we learn through trials in life how to rely on Jesus and live out the implications of our profession. So real faith keeps growing. But the example of Abraham is also a reminder that the process of faith, while directional, you know, growing, it's not linear. Over time, real faith does grow and mature, but there are peaks and valleys. There are steps backward and even huge mistakes. So if you worry that you've made some kind of irrecoverable mistake in your life so that God can no longer accept you, even if he once did, if if that's you, go back and read Abraham's story and be encouraged. Abraham made some huge mistakes, but God continued to work in him and work with him in order to bring his faith to maturity, and he'll do that with you too. As we're thinking about this idea that real faith works, on the one hand, we need to ask ourselves hard questions Like, whose life around me is different and better because of my faith in Jesus? Is my faith working in such a way that it's making a difference for other people? And how has my faith matured since I first trusted in Jesus? 
Now, on the other hand, we recognize that this faith journey is a process. Your faith should be growing, but don't expect it to be linear. Don't let today's doubt or today's failure keep you from pressing back into the grace of God, trusting that he is good and he has not given up on you. Now, one last point about Abraham before we conclude. Remember that God's initial call to Abraham was for him to go and be a blessing. And God promised that through Abraham that all nations would be blessed. And within the book of Genesis, we actually start to see that happen, first in Abraham's story, and even more so at the end of the book when his great-grandson rescues pagan Egypt from a destructive famine. So as real faith works, it brings blessing to the world around it. And I believe that many non-Christians, including my friends, are looking for a faith that works, which was God's plan all along. I'm not sure if there's anything more attractive to an unbelieving world than a faith that transforms individuals and communities and the world. So let's put our faith to work this week in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and see what kind of blessing God might bring. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for never giving up on us. While we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. We know that the work that made our reconciliation to you possible was a work that we could never do on our own. It required a perfect substitute. And the story of Abraham's testing reminds us that you provided that perfect substitute for us, your own son. You made a way for us to follow you. And though we don't do it imperfectly, though we do it imperfectly, we remember that you are using difficulties in this life to shape us, to mature our faith so that it, so that it reaches its goal. And as we prepare to take the bread and cup this morning, we pray that you would examine our hearts. Show us the things that we need to repent of. From whom do we need to ask forgiveness? What parts of our lives do we need to entrust to you? Show us where our faith is only empty words or limited to correct beliefs or only half-hearted. Work in us so that our faith will grow into what you have meant it to be. Amen.